Mark A. Altman, Darren Docterman, Ashley Edward Miller. Three fans who became professionals and then became Trexperts. Inglorious Trexperts. Listen wherever you find podcasts or go to trexpertsplus.com. Virginia, there may not be a Santa Claus, but there is a Galaxy Con, and guess who's coming? <laughs> it's going to be us, the Inglorious Trexperts in As Richmond, in- Virginia. Inglorious Live Tour 2023 continues. Wow. Darren and me, Mark A. Altman, will be in Richmond at GalaxyCon on, uh, when is it, Darren? It's March 24th through 26th. March 24th to March 26th in lovely Richmond, Virginia. And there are going to be a ton of great guests. But none of that matters because we're there. We're there. We are a ton of great guests. We are <laughs> indeed. And we're excited because GalaxyCon is where it's at. These guys put on great shows with great guests, a great dealer's room, and plenty of entertainment. And, we'll and be more. Doing and more. That's exactly. <laughs> the illusion of beauty and more. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited, Darren. It's going to be a great chance to, um, well, I was going to say, a great chance for you to meet the fans. That's right. And, uh, for me for to us. meet the fans, not you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. I'll be eluding uh, deadly scooter accidents, oh but uh, but I'm 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 excited because, uh, like I said, um, uh, the the Inglorious Live Tour, or I, as I call it, my farewell tour. This is like uh, the Who, you know. I'm I'm on my farewell tour, but we know how that turned out. Uh, they've been on the same farewell tour now for fifty years. That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, Forty that years. A, that I, was a Godfather we, reference. Godfather <laughs> two, actually. Yeah, he died, died of the same heart attack since. But uh, but it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be great. Uh, Jody Whitaker is gonna be there. Rosario Dawson, Kevin Smith, uh, Bill Shatner, Brent Spiner. Um, no, this is Columbus. That's Columbus. <laughs> That's Columbus. You gotta I'm click talk- on the gotta click on the Richmond one. I'm talking about Richmond, Virginia. I don't think they have all of their guests up there. They don't. Uh, but Vincent is going to be there. David Tennant's going to be there. Oh, one of our favorite people. You know who's going to be there? Not only is Bill Shatter going to be there, Walt Koenig's going to be there. We love Walt. Oh, good. Yeah, it'd be good to see him. Maybe we can. Uh, maybe maybe we'll, we can uh, show him another movie he hasn't seen in thirty years. <laughs> Jonathan Frakes will be there. Gates is going to be there, and nice. uh, they're just starting to announce some of these guests. But the list goes on and on, um, and it's going to be oh, Mariel Hemingway from my favorite movie Manhattan. Nice, and uh, maybe. If we can moderate a panel with her, I guess she's there for Superman Four, but we can talk about personal best in Manhattan. Oh, I think they'll be go over the heads of the audience. They'll be like, "What? What? What? What's going on here?" Um, Sarah <laughs> Douglas is going to be there. We haven't seen her since, oh, uh, be, since Lola's. Lola's. <laughs> yeah. Superman, that'll be great. Uh, Mark Pillow, Nuclear Man, is going to be there. Nice. And of course, the great Barry Boswick uh, yes. will be there, star of such legendary movies as Megaforce. So uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to be there. We hope you'll be there too. Uh, Check out galaxycon.com for all the details and we'll see you in Richmond, Virginia this March.
Ho-ho-ho! This is Mark A. Altman. Ha-ha-ha! This is Darren Dockerman. Ho-ho-ho! This is Ashley Edward Miller. And we are the Inglorious... Trexperts! And yo, yo, yo! Yo, yo, yo! It's Robert Meyer Burnett straight from the (laughs) observatory. Yerushalayim Shelzahov. Thanks. <laughs> well, a little Hanukkah, Jerusalem. A little Hanukkah uh, action in the uh, observatory going on. Looking up at the, uh, well, no, the North Star is Christmas. So, or no, the Star once, of Bethlehem, right? The Star of Bethlehem. Once is Christmas. again, we play a dangerous game. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to have everybody back. We've had uh, uh, three holiday specials so far. And uh, much like the dreidel, we spin and we spin and we never know where it's going to stop. <laughs> and uh, this has been a delight and uh, we're going to continue. But before we get back to our countdown, starting with number 63, I have to ask you, um, other than John McClane, do you have a favorite Christmas character? You know, not Star Trek, like, a, you know, not, not the people that died in the fire. In generations, but like, uh, is there a, fa- a fa- favorite for me? It's the Burgermeister, 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 Meister, Burger, Burgermeister, Meister, Burger. When he has Burger in the title, but uh, also it's the great, the great Paul Freeze in Santa Claus is Coming to Town. That's one of my favorite of the Christmas specials, and I love that Burgermeister, Meister, Burger. Well, bur- you, burger you know, with monster cheese. It, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean hamburger. It means city. Yeah, I know what it means. <laughs> oh, you think I know that? I will gladly no. pay you Tuesday for a Burgermeister today. Oh my God! It's like you those people have on the your Burgermeister. It's like those people on the Facebook. You know, you know, it wasn't Commander Stone who said I demand it. It's like no shit. I, yes, yes, we, we know. know. With the way it was written, it was. It was. Of course, we know it was Commander. He Kirk says that to Commander Stone, and I demand it right now. Well. Commodore Stone, actually, but that's what I say, Commander Commodore. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, Star Trek doesn't have Commodores anymore, which is ridiculous. Thank you, Commander. We know who Commodore Stone is. I love Commodores. I think it's a great. That they were great. They were great bands. They were a great rank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, okay, Rob. What about you? Who's your favorite Christmas character than John McClane? Uh, well, I have to say that uh, the character that Piazzadora plays in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Oh, my God. God no, okay, okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Wow. I'm kidding. Like, I believe Sorry. That's Go true, ahead. by the way. She was actually, as a little girl, was in Santa yes, Claus that's Conquers. Oh, that's that's why she got her golden, her golden Globe. Best no, uh, newcomer. She was green. Uh, well, I think I think my favorite, well, you got you to gotta take uh, Jimmy Stewart, don't you? You do. Although, is wow. that a New Year's film or it's, is it a, a holiday film? A, a Christmas it's, film. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's a wonderful life. I, it's kind of a falls. New Year's film. Yeah. Yes, Jimmy yes, Stewart's wonderful. What a wonderful film that is. Um, and he's I mean, so he, you know, man. even for a young, young Jewish boy like myself, I always thought It's a Wonderful Life was one of the great fantasy films ever made. Absolutely. Because it's, it's very Dickensian, you know, it's, it's, it's not quite a Christmas carol, but it kind of is too, in a mm. way. I thought it was Donna Reed. I thought you had a crush on Donna Reed. I, well, that, yeah, that well, Donna that Reed, dude. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> what about you, Ashley? Favorite Christmas character? Man, I love Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. But uh, since I can't take John McLean, I'm going to go with Hans Gruber. You know that there is a Hans Gruber advent calendar? Yes. yes. That every day he uh, falls another story of Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. It's the most awesome thing. And think about it. 
like, A, he's like reverse Santa Claus. Like he takes all the presents, except he does give away a really great Rolex watch at the end of the movie. Yeah, um, I guess no, he, he does Santa. bring he people the together. He takes the Rolex. He takes the Rolex. Well, mm, but yeah. at the end. Oh, no, no. no he does. It's he her. is responsible. He He's grabbing her Rolex. Have You're you right. seen Die Hard? Yeah, yes, I've seen it's a Rolex. Commodore Stone. It's it a is, um, you know, <laughs> you know the, the, the thing is, he does bring an ode to joy. So uh, he, does. he is a Christmas character. You know, Santa's a bit of a dick in Rudolph, isn't he, Darren? Well, that's why I mean, he's not he my favorite. That's yeah. Not why yeah. Who's, your, who's your favorite? My favorite is Santa Claus, but from Miracle on 34th Yeah, I knew that was coming. Edmund Gwynn mm-hmm. as, as Chris Kringle, Santa Claus, he is perfect. Yeah, he really is. He's and awesome. That was also that was the other great thing on Channel Eleven, wasn't it? You had Star Trek, right. and you had Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. That's and correct. I, I think it's sad that Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street does not get the love now that it used to when we were growing up. Well, people it gets, all know it it's a wonderful it life. It yeah, who do you think would win in a fight? By the way, Natalie Wood from Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street or Pia Zadora in Santa Claus oh, Conquers the Mars? Totally, Natalie Wood. Oh, Natalie Wood kicked ass. Yeah, you don't yeah. mess with Natalie Wood. Hell yeah, no, he, not, she has the powers of brainstorm. That's, that's right. right. That's the power to move you. That's right. Wait, no, yeah. that's telekinesis, Kyle. Yeah, yeah. That's the power so, to kill uh, a yak from thirty yards away. What's so the, those are our favorite uh, Christmas? What's your characters. favorite Christmas character, Mark? I said the Burger Meister Meister Burger. Oh, because right. he was. Bob I thought Bob you were Bob. joking. No, that's you the know, Five my, Guys. What a you burger! You no, know, no, I'll tell you my favorite. My favorite character. My favorite uh, Christmas character. Um, I, who who do I like? Uh, I like that Rudolph. I like the Rudolph. All right, you like the Rudolph. You know, That's I good. think he he's you know he 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 doesn't get to play in the reindeer games, but he doesn't no. let it get him down. Eventually, he becomes uh, they he, you know he becomes a trusted part of Santa's team. He becomes you know, kind of like Spock. You know, he's sort of excluded by the other Vulcans, wow. right? Even though he's better and he's really good at what he does because he, he's a little different than they are. He's, he's not half human, half Vulcan, but he got the nose. That's a weird Spot nose thing. the point-eared Vulcan. You know, and then he goes off and chases the sellout. You know, he goes wow. off to the Isle of the Misfit Toys. Who's a sellout? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, he's there for Santa when he needs him the most, right? He's like Spock. But Spock I'm... is there for Vulcan. Oh, you know what? <laughs> that makes me think even better than Hans Gruber. Martin Riggs. Oh, and Lethal I Weapon. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I can see Lee that. Peltzer. Yeah. I can see that. And I'm not giving you any diplomatic immunity. Okay. Just been revoked. <laughs> that's, okay. that's the second night in a row we've done Lethal Weapon jokes. Is it? Well, no. Yes. Well, just no, remember, we're, we're recording will be again on a nightly TV. basis, but uh, they're not airing on a, on a on a nightly basis. It could these have been. Could, these could occur months apart. That's well, right. In fact, that's going to be another countdown, the top 101 references to Lethal Weapon <laughs> on this show. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's the, it's the end of the year. So, you know, the last time we talked about our favorite TV shows of 2022, I want to ask you guys um, uh, a favorite DVD Physical media. We're all big proponents of physical media here. Love to hear maybe oh, one or two highlights of the year. Maybe uh, tell our listeners uh, something that they should grab. Or if they didn't get it for Christmas, they can use their gift cards. This was a great year for 4K remasters, can I just say? You can mm-hmm. say. We got Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. We got the Godfather trilogy. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, those are classic films that came don't out. Don't take all well, of them. Leave oh, some Rob, don't, the forget, don't forget Casablanca and Double Indemnity. I was, you know, uh, those two as well. And Casablanca came out last week. Mm -hmm. But in terms of non-movie non titles, I would say one of the greatest discs, I won't bogart them, but if I could just mention two, both <laughs> Top Gun, Maverick, and Dune. Mm. Dune, those Dune was are, mine. Dune was the one I was going to pick. The Which new Dune, one? 84 you should the pick new the one. other one. The, I, I'm, I'm picking the new the one. one. I'm picking okay. the new one. You take the new, I shall take the old. Yeah, ex explain what that is, Darren. It's uh, an amazing, what is it, five, seven discs, something like that? It's insane. It, it's, uh, it, it's from Germany. It's this amazing uh, uh, plexiglass box encased uh, uh, 4K Blu-ray set that have every version of David Lynch's Dune ever created, with or without his permission. Yeah, with uh, or without you. It's, <laughs> they're, they're awesome, and they look great, and they sound great, and, uh, and they have, uh, they have uh, some uh, supplementary material that isn't in German. And I have to say, it's the second disc in history that has a fan edit of a movie on it. That's true. And it it's has, really good. Yeah, it has the Spice Diver edit of Dune, which I think right. is maybe the definitive version of David Lynch's Dune. Really? Wow. I haven't seen that because I have the wow. American I have the American version, which, yeah. which doesn't have the documentary and doesn't have all the goodies on it. Right. But um, I'll have to I didn't, I didn't even know that, that existed. Where do you, I mean, is that the oh, only place? Oh, it's gone. It's gone. And then it's gone. It's like tears Much like and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yeah. But uh, but I'm sure one of these guys would be happy to show it to you at some point <laughs> if you were. So but there inclined. has been, I mean, I have to say that that as physical media has diminished, 2022 is a phenomenal year overall yeah. for physical media. I mean, everything from Cronenberg's Videodrome came out in a beautiful box set in 4K. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I look over uh, newer movies. The Japanese animated film Bell is a great. Uh, oh my disc. god, that movie is so good, dude! It's, it's so, so good. good. That came out in 4K. Basic Instinct came out from Studio Canal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lionsgate's going to put it out next year. And Touch of Evil came out from Kino Lorber and Usual Suspects, which are both great discs. Show us on the where the evil touched you came out. <laughs> what? I mean, I mean was, there, there's an amazing, uh, so much good stuff has come out in 4K. Well, I'm and I so think we would be remiss. I think we need to. Talk to our esteemed colleague here indeed. to talk if to him about. The, let's, the to, only, let's find out yeah. what is really the greatest 4K disc that came out this year, Darren. Well, wow. I have a few before we get to Darren. Um, Reservoir Dogs came Amber. out this week, mm -hmm. and even though there's no uh, no new bonus material, in fact, it's very dated bonus material. The 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 the, 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 the is gorgeous. Because of Reservoir Dogs, he's going to and the and the Criterion, uh, the Criterion uh, 4Ks, everything from Citizen Kane to Last Waltz to Double Indemnity, fantastic. They've just been hitting out of the park with their 4K releases. I don't know if I their Blu-rays have have been as good lately. Well, um, 4Ks the, have really taken their stand this year. They have, they have they have established themselves, and they're not going away yet. Yeah. The Batman 4K is great, you know, the but probably. Oh, and then there was a wonderful Blu-ray, a Woody Allen collection, had Everyone Says I Love You, finally, on Blu-ray. Uh, Bullets Over Broadway's in that set. But if there's one to rule them all, I think uh, we can probably all agree something very special came out of retail this year. And Darren, tell us what it is. Well, I don't know. No, it's the, uh, it's the movie that proved that uh, the odd-numbered 
movies aren't necessarily bad. And it is Star Trek, the motion picture, the director's edition on 4K Blu-ray. And uh, it's, uh, in, it's in many forms on, the, uh, on Amazon and uh, the internet and everywhere. It is, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, we were able to come back and remaster the director's edition that we had done way back in 2001. And it is back and it has never looked as good. The movie looks amazing, especially when you watch it next to the theatrical version of the movie. Um, which but it sounds amazing. It sounds incredible. The uh, the new Atmos mix is, it is a modern movie now, and it is amazing. It, also, dare, we'd dare be I remiss, say so myself. If we don't add to that, that also Star Trek's two, three, four, five, and six also came out in four K. Indeed, yeah, they did. They did. They did, and it's great to have all the Star Trek films that matter in four K now on um, HBO Max. Well, and on physical media. And it was so weird because at the beginning of the year, they came out with that weird set of one through four. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and then at the end of the year, they came out with obviously the very super duper special Star Trek, the motion picture director's edition. And then a set which had one through six yeah. uh, in it. You know, so the, it totally rendered that one through four set superfluous. Um, in, more, in more ways than one. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I love the I love that special box set that has all three versions of um, the motion picture, the theatrical. The, it's fun. The and if you can find version. the British version, it has slightly better packaging. Yeah, I can. It's right over there. Well, uh, aren't you uh, the good boy? Uh, boy, yes. everything's in the observatory. It's like the TARDIS <laughs> in there. You, like you the would not believe what I have in here. Did, you should see my Emmanuel 4K box set. Oh wow. Mm -hmm. Did I'm you sure say, you've seen your Emmanuel 4K oh box my. set. Have you oh, I have. Look at Emmanuel's box. That's why there's off. no Kleenex left in here. Oh, my God, oh. Oh my God dude. Oh, we're all okay. going to Okay, well, and... ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that was a great episode. Children of, of all ages. <laughs> welcome back to the Inglorious Trexperts holiday special where we count down the greatest 101 Star Trek characters of all time. In parts one through three, we counted down from 101 to 64, and we resume the countdown tonight with number 63... Robert Byer Burnett, tell us who's it going to be. Uh, this, I have to say, uh, this is a character created by Jerry Taylor. And this is a character that I honestly never thought. I remember, so when I was doing the, the, the um, documentaries for Blu-ray, Michael Dorn told the story of when he learned, because Michael Dorn is a classic a, uh, a, a fan of so classic fan. cinema. Yep. He loved classic cinema. It was abundantly clear when he was on the show. And when he discovered that the great Gene Simmons, no, not <laughs> not the kiss Gene <laughs> Simmons. Rock and she didn't want to rock Gene and roll Simmons. all night and party every day. She was uh, too old for that. He couldn't believe it. I mean, Are it, you much saying like, that he had great expectations? Uh, <laughs> he had great <laughs> expectations. And I'm, of course, talking about the character of Nora Satie. Tell me, Captain, have you completely recovered from your experience with the Borg? Yes, I have completely recovered. It must have been awful for you. Actually becoming one of them. Being forced to use your vast knowledge of Starfleet operations to aid the Borg. Just how many of our ships were lost? Thirty-nine? 
and a loss of life, I believe, measured at nearly 11,000. One wonders how you can sleep at night, having caused so much destruction. I question your actions, Captain. I question your choices. I question your loyalty. You know, there are some words I've known since I was a schoolboy. With the first link, the chain is forged. The first speech censured, the first thought forbidden, the first freedom denied, chains us all irrevocably. Those words were uttered by Judge Aaron Satie as wisdom and warning. The first time any man's freedom is trodden on, we're all damaged. I fear that day. How dare you! You who consort with Romulans, invoke my father's name to support your traitorous arguments. It is an offense to everything I hold dear. And to hear those words used to subvert the United Federation of Planets. My father was a great man. His name stands for integrity and principle. You dirty his name when you speak it. He loved the Federation, but you, Captain, corrupt it. You undermine our very way of life. I will expose you for what you are. I've brought down bigger men than you, Picard. Uh, in the fourth season, the latter half of the fourth season, the episode, The Drumhead, which... Uh, is one of the most, it continues to be one of the most relevant episodes of of Star Trek, I think, ever made. As the years tick by, uh, especially in the America we live in today, uh, we have to be ever vigilant to make sure that the rule of law and the the rights of prisoners and the rights of our legal system are protected. And this episode is incredible. Obviously, Nora Satie is the daughter of a very famous Federation official that Picard admires and everyone admires. And she comes to investigate what may or may not be a conspiracy on board the Enterprise D. And her her she her reach uh, starts and begins during her investigation that Worf helps her with. So I can only imagine what it was like for Michael Dorn. I mean, I don't have to imagine you told me, but what it was like for him to act with the great Gene Simmons in this episode. And, you know, people don't, the the next generation and more so on Deep Space Nine, but they got some great actors to come on to TNG, especially in the latter half of the show, like the great David Warner, who who Patrick Stewart said was the greatest Hamlet He'd ever seen on the British stage, yeah, and that was this... and Fred Astaire was amazing. That oh, was not that was Buck Rogers. Oh no, it was Elster Galactica. It was Galactica. Yeah, oh, come on, oh, dude. Buck Rogers. My, my bad. But um, why well, Buster Crab was Buck Rogers? Come That's on, correct. You get it right. But no, I, mean, I don't even know her crab. This is a <laughs> she. She delivers an incredible turn, and and when she loses it at the end during the grilling of Picard. And and again, one of the greatest Patrick Stewart Picard uh, speeches. Mm, that grilling. smells great. What are you grilling? <laughs> sorry. Come on, Rob's making a point. I know. Yeah, one of the most hey, hey, it's all right. It's all right. You want? I'm trying to. You know, I'm trying to be erudite yes, here. Yes, yes. Well, I'm trying and, to elevate and, and, the discourse. It was you know to to take the blacklist 
and apply it to Star Trek and, and say how quickly something like this can get out, get out of hand, how dangerous it is. Um, you know, it, it's real. And, and remember, the story is a bottle show. They need to save money. Oh, and, and by the way, Mark, this is an example of how you do a great bottle show. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is one great writing, and this is how you want to save money during a season. You you spend your money on getting a great uh, guest actor to come on and just deliver. I mean, she let's face it, she does chew the scenery quite a bit, but yeah, I don't. But she's care. great. She's yeah. great, and and you know, it's a really it was a really chilling episode. And when uh, Picard explains what a drumhead is to Worf. And then also when he he delivers, when he's on the stand being grilled and she accuses him because of, and it follows up on Best of Both Worlds and Family and and what happened during the Battle of Wolf 359. It's a great tie-in to all of that. She questions Picard's integrity and he gives it right back to her. And it is it is peak Star Trek. Yeah, two and acting one my, titans. One of my favorite uh, episodes of The Next Generation, bar none. Totally Fantastic. Agree. She's she's awesome. I mean, as a character on the page and uh, and on the stage. And as you said, I think it it is an episode that will that is relevant that will always be relevant. Whether you're talking about you know the Inquisition, the blacklist, cancel culture, like whatever it is that you're talking about, where it becomes uh, convenient, um, you know, to uh, to create a, a permanent enemy class. You know, it just it, it's fascinating that it it holds up in the way that it does and i think will always feel fresh we'll always be able to look at that and go hmm um and again like the just the performances in that episode are just outstanding you know there's another character they introduced this character of simon tarsus you know this young man who has hidden part of his background because he desperately wanted to be a part of starfleet and it's uncovered and and you realize that he deserves to be in starfleet perhaps he's the best example of what starfleet could be and yet his entire career because he he made one mistake and didn't reveal a a, a part of his uh, of his past that would have precluded him or whatever from being a member of Starfleet there's so many levels to this episode and it really just it works and it shows that the best star trek does not have villains the best star trek has antagonists that might start out with good intentions but wind up in the in the depths of hell people like Ambassador or uh, Governor Kodos in um, uh, in Conscience, uh, of, the Conscience of the King, and uh, you know people who are, who who are trying to do what they can, and then they turn into the the, the most vile of villains. Yeah, Norasati is not you know she is not doing it for the lulls. <laughs> she no. she legit believes that she's protecting the Federation. Um, and yeah, she's not she's, doing it for fundraising. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's. It, there's there's something about her that is um and and Gene Simmons certainly um accesses it that is sincere that is um it weirdly idealistic mm -hmm. but it is idealism that is kind of corrupted and turned inside out and she doesn't even realize it until Picard gives her the beatdown after yeah. the grilling the delicious yeah. well she's trying to live up to her father you know yeah and uh but and it's even so that element's great mm hmm well, I mean, and you talk about the character who's hiding something who she reveals, and it's interesting because, you know, it's no secret that Star Trek in the 90s didn't do a great job of dealing with um, 
sort of gay issues and 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 um they, they weren't quite sure how to do, deal with it they never really depicted you know characters uh you know it was something they were reluctant to even you know first gene and later rick but in a way this is a metaphor for you know particularly the military of the of the era you know the whole don't ask don't tell um mm -hmm. and the fact that he was withholding this information uh and that they ferreted it out and then they got rid of somebody who was a real asset to the starfleet so um it's it's such a well written episode. It's so powerful, and again, it's it's something that was done as a cost saver. And what a difference! You compare something like Shades of Grey, you know, not to bag on that again, which is the clip show in first season, second season, to something like The Drumhead, which probably cost on par with what uh, um, Shades of Grey did with the three days of filming. And it's just uh, it's it's triumphant. It's 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 one of the great Next Generation episodes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings us number 62, and we're back with Darren Zoxman. Number 62 is uh, a, uh, a fan favorite of people who like uh, uh, what we call the old friends of Kirk. Hmm. Uh, and he was uh, one of the closest friends to James Kirk, at least uh, before the whole Spock thing. And that is Commander Gary Mitchell. I'm trying to tell you I feel fine. When do I go back on duty? I'm going to ask Dr. Dana to keep you under observation for a while. With almost 100 women on board, you can do better than that, friend captain. Consider it a challenge. That doesn't seem very friendly. Didn't I say you'd better be good to me? And uh, he is, uh, of course, uh, played by uh, Frank Poole. No, wait, not Frank Poole. It is Frank Poole. Uh, by uh, the great uh, Gary Lockwood. Um, I don't know if they had to uh, call the character Gary to uh, get him to respond to lines, but I, let's leave it at that. Um, Gary Mitchell is uh, went through uh, Starfleet Academy with James Kirk and uh, knew him from when he was a, a stack of books with legs. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are uh, very close in, in fact that uh, Gary can uh, tell Kirk things that no one else would ever get away with. Hey man, your zipper's done. It's, uh, well, it's I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that would have happened had that occurred. Uh, in Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second filmed pilot of the Star Trek show, uh, Gary is uh, affected by a cloud, a uh, space <laughs> cloud at the, uh, at the edge of the galaxy uh, that uh, turns his eyes into uh, 
well, tinfoil. He has tinfoil eyes uh, and uh, Could uh, tele telekinetic powers that are uh, just developing. And uh, he goes, well, uh, I'll tell you, he, he goes a little bit crazy uh, is what. And uh, he- We'll go uh, a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes, uh, but- uh, you know, I mean, he's he's uh, he's wielding his power like a madman, uh, bringing cups across the room and such things like that. Uh, they have to do something about Gary. And uh, in fact, that could have been the uh, name yeah, of the episode. episode. There's something, There's about, something Gary. about Gary. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a it's a great action packed episode that uh, helped sell the series really. And uh, uh, Gary Lockwood. Um, doesn't really have any pleasant things to say about Shatner these days because uh, I think he uh, he was one of the first to feel the uh, the overwhelming uh, ego and power of the number one on the call sheet. The wrath uh, of Kirk. The wrath of Kirk. How um, number one made him feel like number two. Something like that. Yes. Uh, but uh, hey, at least he uh, outranked Spock. Well, you got to remember that you know the, the, for Gary Lockwood, he was number one on the lieutenant. He was uh, he right. was the star of that, and you know he also has a reputation of being very arrogant and full of himself. Indeed. You know, and if you talk to Sally Kellerman, she she would say she actually found that quite attractive about him. But of at the course. same time, he was an egomaniac. He was and, repulsed yet strangely attracted. Yeah, and so you know it must have been really hard. It's really hard when you've been the star of your own show, walking on and becoming a guest star on somebody else's show. Yeah. So I would take you know some of those comments with a grain of salt. Well, but of that course. worked for that character, obviously. Absolutely. The, the ego and the narcissism. And, and it's, the it's one of the tragedies of uh, of Star Trek that uh, uh, Kirk's dear friend met uh, a horrible fate, we think. We never really actually caught up with what happened to Gary Mitchell. Until Star Trek V. Until Star Trek V, when he reveals himself. The quest the, for Gary. The quest for Gary. Um, it's uh, I love where no man has gone before. It's uh, it's creepy in an early kind of sense. It's like uh, it's like watching uh, home movies, and uh, it's it's not quite the Star Trek that we're used to, but it is the Star Trek that we deserve. It's more closer Forbidden Planet, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings us number sixty-one, and Ashley Edward Miller. You know, there are a lot of things in this world that we consume um, that we don't quite give enough credit to. Uh, for example, a really delicious bowl of vanilla ice cream. Um, or What character is that? Properly applied Troy? to yep. uh, tuna salad. Um, I myself uh, am quite fond of tofu in the, uh, in the, in the right circumstances. Now you may say to yourself, Ashley, all these things that you're describing, they're kind of bland. But I would say to you that there is a place for blandness. Because when you add a little spice to it, it holds the spice. It makes the spice nice. The spice, the spice is life. Flow. The spice is life. And the spice must flow. You, you just you can't you, you can't function without it. And there's a character on The Next Generation who was really the, the tofu of The Next Generation, I think. Um, and I really, I really liked him. <laughs> he was a man of, uh, of unique vision. Indeed. Jordi LaForge. 
Nice. This alien space baby, which was about the size of a four-story building, really thought the Enterprise was its mother. Oh, you're pulling an old man's leg. <laughs> no, really. It was suckling power directly from the ship's fusion reactors. So Dr. Brahms and I changed the power frequency from 21 centimeters to 0 0.02 centimeters. So you soured the milk. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, enjoy these times, Jordy. You're the chief engineer of a starship. And it's a time of your life that'll never come again. When it's gone, it's gone. Jordy began uh, as the helmsman of the ship, I guess because Gene Well, he began was... with the uh, the rainbow connection. Well, yes, but uh, but I think Gene like literally thought, okay, it'd be funny if the blind guy is piloting the ship. Yeah. Hilarious, but... Uh, eventually, they realized they needed somebody down in the engine room, and uh, Jordy was just another guy sitting up in, like on the bridge, and you know all he did was go boop 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 and push buttons. Um, and they thought, well, could he push buttons in a in a more interesting looking place? And so they put him down in the engine room. And um, no one liked Commander McGonagall. No, nobody liked Commander McGonagall. So they replaced Commander McGonagall uh, or Chief Argyle. That's you don't right. want to, you know what? You don't want a guy who is named after socks to be your chief engineer. Oh, I thought he <laughs> was the limo driver in Die Hard. Yeah, well, oh, you know, when goodness. he's a limo driver, Die Hard, he's awesome. Like that scene where Chief Argyle like calls up to bridge. I was thinking that you know we could uh, we could call up some mama bears and have a little party. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or is he married? The, like the great <laughs> he's married is that is that Levar Burton is obviously he's he's a wonderful soul. Um, and you know, he certainly projects all of that with the character. There is a definite kindness and an empathy, uh, to him. Um, you know, he has a, a really wonderful relationship with, uh, with data. Uh, and you know, you just, you never see him in an episode where you don't like, and he even gets to be like, you know, a little creepy sometimes. And you're like, totally good with it. Like, um, like, uh, you know, what was her name? The uh, that when he fell in love with like what's her name? Uh -huh. Oh, um, Leia Brahms. In Galaxy's Child, yes, Leia, Leia Brahms. Brahms. He, he falls in love with Leia. She Brahms. used to be Flint. Yeah, and then before that, of... she was Leonardo da Vinci. Now she was Brahms. That's right. I mean, but it was cool. Like when uh, later she shows up for real, and he's like, "Oh, this is awkward as hell." I mean, there's just he, did, he did not was... have game. He did no, not have game, no. Jordy. And that was his appeal, right? That's what yeah, I mean. Like he needed the tofu. Know. He doesn't have. Game and not every Star Trek character should have game. And it was yeah, but, okay. but Jordy, it, it was kind of like it didn't really feel like true to the character. Like that he was so he had you know he was so uncomfortable around women and just like so like nervous. I, I think well, Barkley Barkley could have gotten a yeah. date before Jordy did. Yeah, no That's kidding. The but, but in fairness to Jordy about the whole Leah Brahms not affair. Uh, -huh. uh I think it was actually played pretty well. It was like that it's just the the, the thing that was potentially running through that episode with uh with his whole uh, interaction with her with that hologram was that he in spite of himself he was fooled by the hologram and by the reality of the hologram. And well, what was, was great about that was you had the episode I think it was Galaxy Child where the hologram and then they brought the real Leah Brahms yeah. In yeah. another episode, and that was, I think that was what was really clever. But again, yeah. Jordy, I just don't buy him being like, you know, so lame. Well, he was lame. I mean, I think that they did him a disservice in uh, in one major way, which is, I mean, great that he's blind, except that when you put that visor on his face, you can't see his eyes. When you can't see his eyes, it just, it, 
it interferes the performance in. Uh, yeah, but the, the look, but especially you, you saw sort of, you saw his eyes in the you saw his eyes in the movies. It didn't it, it did. didn't change anything. I mean, I don't know. I think it kind of did. I mean, it's like look, you know, Levar Burton has got uh, he's very expressive. And, yeah, you know, he's, like, a, and not, he's a wonderful actor. The actors are like that. LeVar and is a wonderful actor. He was yeah. brilliant in Roots. Yeah. You know, I mean, everything I've seen him in, I think he's he's terrific. You know, and I'm not saying he wasn't good. He was good next year. Yeah, of course he was But good. I, he was I don't feel it's a character that was necessarily as well served as he could have been. Yeah. Um, Rob, but what you would you miss think if he wasn't Forge? there? That's the thing. And that's, I think, why he is on the list. Because do. he's fundamentally likable. He's very likable. Yeah, Rob's I mean, like, look, I think that I think that Jordy LaForge was never ever given his due in the entirety of Next yeah. Generation. Yeah. And he I you know, they because they really didn't know what to do with him. And the fact that he he was he was driving the ship in season 1 then they mm -hmm. they sent him down to engineering, you know, and and I think it's because I mean, he he was so affable, you know, that they didn't and I think they might have been maybe a little bit afraid to give him to give him the kind of because he was both blind and he was black. What? And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that they were afraid to delve into the real meaty uh, parts because it, they, they they I think they were afraid to do it. And, and because of that, they didn't give him some hard hitting storylines. And, you know, I never thought they leaned into the blindness the way that they could have. They didn't. And there's that no. awful scene in, what was it, the beginning of Heart of Glory, where they're just trying to show off how the how it works. And it's like literally yeah. 10 minutes of like they're standing on the bridge like, wow, look. Yeah. And they're shooting it with like this ridiculous filter. And it it's nearly like, yeah. sinks that episode, which is otherwise great. Yeah, yeah. I, have to, I have to say, I mean, this is, this is the, I mean, race was never an issue in modern Star Trek, but I really hated the fact that they sub they've they used his visor and his blindness as a way for villains to create subterfuge that yeah, they like were able generations. to monitor mm -hmm. and generations and 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 uh, I didn't like that at all and I thought that that there was you know the idea of the way he could see and 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 the fact that he was given technology to help him see was actually very cool and. I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I really like LeVar Burton. And he later went on to, I have to say this, I was actually on the set when I was working on the Star Trek experience in Vegas. We shot part of the ride film on the set of the Deep Space Nine episode, Soldiers of the Empire. Oh, wow. That he directed. Mm. And it was really cool because we had to shoot on the bridge of the Klingon Bird of Prey. And it was the scene when all the Klingons are singing together. And he was directing that episode. And I actually got to meet him and, and introduce myself and watch him direct. And, of course, he was wearing a beret. That's all right. <laughs> but it was... Uh, it was it, As opposed to a beret in front of his eyes. Yes. If he yes, was. Yes, raspberry beret. <laughs> that's um, right. But, but, you know, um, Rob, you make a really good point, what you just said about... That they used his disability, um, you know, as as something that was to his detriment. And right. really, Star Trek, the, the message of Star Trek is that disability should have been an asset. So your generations once again did something they that they shouldn't have done. Yeah. With, you know, by by using that, you know, by Sauron being able to use that uh, against him. 
and against the the. No, I mean the whole reason it's because of Jordy that the Enterprise is destroyed. When you think about it, which right. is you know awful, and 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 to to lay that on him and and be basically because right. he was blind, they were able it's to like, capitalize. You can think on of this. off the top of my head, I can think of ten different ways that you could use uh, Jordy's visor and the way he sees as a tactical. Advantage is somebody yes. lying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, is somebody a shapeshifter? Uh, you know, is there somebody around the goddamn corner? Uh, you know, and just boom, 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 all and of they, these things. Mm-hmm. And they never just, did that. And they and never did that. The idea that technology augments human senses to the betterment of mankind would would have been yeah. like transhumanism would have been much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Instead th- of making it seem like a tragedy. I think it would have been interesting if they had actually played Jordy's character as feeling uh, superior. superior to everybody mm-hmm. else because of his yes. handicap. Mm-hmm. That would have been a fascinating way to go, but never once. Yeah, yeah, and that's what Rob's talking about with the transhumanism. Yeah. That's really, it's really interesting. But it's the same way they didn't know what to do with the Marina's characteristics, yeah. with the with the uh, the empathy. Yeah, I got nothing, the, you know. <laughs> and 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 it's so it's so true that they weren't able to do anything with, um, uh, you know, LaForge's uh, unique vision. Um, right. But uh, but you know, look when, when he worked in episodes like um, the Enemy, he's terrific. Terrific, yeah. he, even in. Um, some of uh, the episodes which aren't as good, uh, where he's featured, um, like the one where he becomes what an amphibian or something. What was that one? <laughs> was Identity that, or gen- something. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, but um, but you know, he's always he's affable. You know, um, it, it, it's an interesting character, and of course, it's a, a tribute to um, the Star Trek fan. Uh, um, it was David Gerald's idea of a blind Star Trek fan that they named LaForge after. But uh, right. it's, um, you know, it, it's a character that had a lot more potential. I, and pre- I do think that in uh, Relics, his interchanges with Scotty were really good because yeah. it kind of showed that Jordy's a little bit of a dick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's And a good I point. really liked that. Yeah. He was like, okay, okay. boomer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very much. And so. let's let's lest we not forget that a relative of his was in Star Trek Four. A relative of his, or Star Trek Six, Star Trek Four, Star Trek Six of 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 Jordy. Yeah, because his mom was played by Madge Sinclair. Oh, Madge oh Sinclair. yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's a little. That's a deep cut. That's good. That's good. Okay, well, that's Jordy LaForge. I think some people can be very disappointed that he wasn't higher on this list, but I think or we that we call why. him tofu. But yes. No, you called him. Tofu. You called him. Tofu. <laughs> but that's a perfect explanation. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and that brings us back to Rob Meyer Burnett at number sixty. Wow, did I love this character? Um, uh, again, you know, I guess you could call it a relative. Old Flames. Star Trek did a good job of bringing back Old Flames, especially when it came to James T. Kirk. But who would have thought? Who would have thought that they would have brought back not only an old flame, but the old flame? In Worf's life. Right. And I'm, of course, talking about Susie Plaxon as Kalar. You are late. Sorry. Had to make myself beautiful. I fail to understand why. Worf, we're alone now. You don't have to act like a Klingon glacier. I don't bite. Well, that's wrong. I do bite. Shall we proceed with our assigned duties? You weren't this aloof six years ago. Or don't you remember? There is nothing wrong with my memory. 
Well, there's something wrong with the rest of you. You're not even looking at me. I'm familiar with your appearance. The half-human, half-Klingon, yeah. something that was very new at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and my God, she was a badass. She was a special uh, ambassador, Federation ambassador, an emissary. And she was also the mother of Alexander. Worf's Alexander. Son. And, uh, you know, her, when she was introduced in the second season, um, I loved her immediately. And, and the way she stood up to Worf and the way she interacted with Picard. Susie Plaxon was brought back. She played a Vulcan. Uh, yeah. They brought her back. And my God, was I thought her performance was ferocious as Kalar. I loved her. And the fact that Star Trek went to a very dark place with mm -hmm. her fate, mm -hmm. where, and when she was murdered by Duras, you know, and, and, and then Worf, Alexander sees his dead mother, and Worf says, Look, you know, that look way that he does, this is death. Look at this. Mm. I don't know if that was great parenting, but it was certainly good <laughs> parenting. That's and, exactly um, what I said to my children. Uh, yes, then always. But, but I, I again, I love this. Fuck? I love this character and the fact that they brought her back and she participated in the whole Klingon Civil War discommendation storyline and and yeah. was was instrumental in all of that. I was really sorry to see her get killed, but they did it. If a character has to go. They gave her one of the great deaths in Star Trek history, and it was shocking. But her character, man, she was tremendous and gave us also gave us insight into the Klingon culture that we'd never really had before. And their relationship, I thought, was really credible. I thought when they were together that her, uh, Susie Plaxon and Michael Dorn really played it very, very well. Mm -hmm. And she just lit up the screen. Yeah, she did. She played it with a twinkle in her eye, didn't she? Yes, yeah. she did. Yeah, yeah. No, it was great. And it's interesting, that show worked so well. It was dabbling with serialization. You know, it's like when it dabbled with serialization, yeah. the whole idea of the Klingon discontaminate. The arc with the Klingons and, and Worf. Uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, obviously later with um, Picard and, and the family leading out of uh, Best of Both Worlds. But when they dabbled with serialization, it really worked. And Kalar was a part of that. And um, it, it's a shame that they 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 weren't more aggressive about pursuing serialization in the way that Deep Space Nine would a few years later. Yeah, I, I think though that you know with TV, I mean, our beloved Wise Guy did maybe maybe things like Hill Street Blues might have, but there was really no serialization back then. They didn't do that, and nope. yet, yet when they did do it, and the whole sins of the father storyline turning into reunion or. or um, Redemption one and two. Never mind. Yeah. Oh, so, oh. No, I was just going to try and pronounce discontent. Dis discommendation. Discommendation. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was it was great stuff, Pete man. Pot whistle. And uh, <laughs> it was, and it was really interesting because Gene, you know, never thought of Worf as a main character. Right. Yeah. He never yeah. thought of of never Worf did. as being one of the main, and didn't understand. I mean, Ron Moore tells the story about, you know, they had to have Rick Berman just. Tell them like when they wanted to do sins of the father, Gene didn't want to do it, and they're like, Rick was like, just you guys go do it, and I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. yeah. Gene would say, no, Worf isn't one of our main characters. I think that's what <laughs> he told Leonard Mazelich to tell the ex-wife. So, like, oh no, there's no connection to the original Star Trek, not, not at all. Well, you have Klingons, but they're not really important. 
And they're, they're not the same ones. I mean, just look at them. They're They've got crap different. on their heads. <laughs> we do not speak of it. Because, you know, that was, that's the famous story is that, um, uh, you know, Gene would have to pay the ex-Mrs. Roddenberry uh, on anything Star Trek, uh, original Star Trek related. But if they did a new Star Trek, he wouldn't have to pay her. But And that's why at first he was so reluctant to have any elements of the original Star Trek in um, Next Generation. It's very similar to what people say about Lucas and why he doesn't want the originals that to come out because then he has to pay Marsha. If that that that's you know whether that's apocryphal or not, that's that's the story. Don't know. Yeah. So okay, Kalar, great character, uh, played by the great Susie Plaxon, who made this list twice now. Mm. And uh, and uh, that brings us to uh, number fifty nine. And Ashley Edward Miller is back with another beloved. Well, I don't know if beloved, but another Deep Space Nine <laughs> character. You know, we we talked about this on the we've talked about this again and again. But one of the great strengths of Deep Space Nine has been um, its casting uh, for these amazing guest and supporting roles. Um, the just the incredible actors that that show was able to get and attract with the uh, just the, the terrific writing um, that it that it demonstrated. And um, the the character who's coming in at number fifty nine is uh, is no different. Uh, played by the great Frank Langella, or as Mark Altman might say, Frank Langella. No, I would say Frank <laughs> Langella, one of my favorite actors who's brilliant in the role of Mr. Jarrow in, in the three-parter, uh, the Circle Trilogy on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yes, uh, Mr. Jarrow. My name is Lee Nellis. Perhaps you've heard of me. Guys, stop that woman. What is this blasphemy? I am Major Kira Norris, and I come with proof that the Cardassians are behind Minister Jarl's attempt to take control of the government. Major Kira has long been an outspoken opponent of the provisional government, of reason, of progress, and now finally, of me. I'm honored to be included, Major, but I have no intention of allowing you to disrupt the orderly transition of power with these wild charges. This is a manifest pad from a Krasari vessel. It bears the thumb scan of a Cardassian gull who transferred weapons to that ship. Those weapons were taken by the Krasari to the Circle. This coup will deliver Bajor back into the hands of its greatest enemies. Are you willing to live under Cardassian rule again? I assure you there's nothing to these accusations. Then you should have no objection to an inspection of this manifest minister. No, of course not. We'll adjourn for the time being. And let me say that I completely support this investigation and fully intend to cooperate. The, uh, the, the, uh, the, the... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just, just people need to go back to Frank Longolo. Uh, <laughs> the second season opening three-parter, Homecoming, Circle, and the Siege. Um, he's terrific. Uh, he's yet another Deep Space Nine villain with a very particular point of view. He's a uh, Bajoran minister who very much not only wants to be out from under the heel of the Cardassians, he wants to be out from under the heel of the Federation. And he has been secretly... Uh, buying up armaments so that the Bajoran military can be 
um, put into a position where they can say credibly that they don't need the Federation's protection anymore. Mm. Um, but they've been moving against uh, people who are uh, who are supportive of having the the Federation around. You know, and he has a as they usually do in the show that he has a lot of great reasons. He made a perfect uh, call. It was the perfect call. The perfect call. There was nothing Except wrong with that call. That. Um, what he didn't know was that the uh, that the arms were secretly being sold to him by the Cardassians, and it was all part of a Cardassian plot. Um, and he's just look, uh, Frank Longla is uh, <laughs> he's he's he is both um, accessible and at times when he needs to be um, terrifying. He doesn't come off as like you know as a He's, he never twirls the muscle. Well, you, you know what's terrifying is that he's sleeping with Kai Wynn. That's yeah, terrifying. That is terrifying. Can you imagine that? It'd be like watching animals try to murder each other in a cage. I don't know, man. <laughs> Kai Wynn's got to be a hell of a bounce. You know what I'm saying? I mean, come on. No, not as not as much as Kyle Pectate. Uh no, oh. no, no. I I think Kai Wynn had it going on. I'm telling well, you. Whether or not Minister Jara was <laughs> was uh, was worshiping at her temple, I hit that. And showing her the prophet, oh. yeah, it's yeah, true, is irrelevant. <laughs> I got the orb <laughs> of me. I want to show anyway. you. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, character, great. I know this. Everyone's gonna get mad. I'm sorry. We're just having a little bit of fun. At least no one said wormhole. Look, here's the thing. Here's the thing that was amazing about Franklin Jello. Those of us of a certain age remember he was a, a huge megastar on Broadway. He did Dracula on Broadway and was a huge star. And then he does the 1978 John Bannum adaptation of Dracula. Huge star. All through the 80s, he's in a he bunch was of movies. Skeletor and Masters of the Universe. Well, That's right. God's sake. Yeah. He was in but, the, the but Ninth Gate. He's in a lot of big movies. He's he's a, he's a you know consummate actor, stage and screen. And then he's on Star Trek. It's like it's hard, you know. You couldn't believe it. I mean, they had an Oscar winner in Louise Fletcher as Kai Wynn, and then Frank Langella, a Tony yeah. winner. I mean, it was this was a huge deal. It was like, not only was it a huge deal. You know, Deep Space Nine had gone out on its first season on a high. You had the one-two punch of duet and in the hands of the prophets. Yep. And then they open it up with the first Star Trek three-parter. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, you could say family, but it, you know, uh, but this was a design designed yeah, to be a three parter, yeah. And it was fascinating, and and I think that that the the it was even the, better when they remade it in the sixth season. Yeah, I mean, in the in the uh, it was a little rough. I mean, I think the second season of Deep Space Nine leaned heavily into the angry Bajorans, and they were they deserved to be angry. But that three parter, I remember just. I was like, wow, Star Trek was really reaching for something it had never done before. Well, if I, you think about what was going on, and I mean, you kind of pointed out that the uh, that the the season one went out on a high of duet followed by In the Hands of the Prophets. And what was at the core of both of those episodes was the relationship between the Bajorans and the Cardassians, the history um, that was behind the show, right? The premise. And what the show discovered, I think, in the first season is that its premise worked pretty well. Yeah. Um, at that time, its excuse for existing, the wormhole, didn't really work all that well. But what was going on in Bajor did, mm -hmm. and um, you know that three-parter, I, I think, was uh, was the show kind of um, experimenting with. All right, well, how do we explore a single culture or a single conflict more deeply? How do we bring it out? How do we, you know, express it in in different characters? And eventually, you know, that that experimentation I think leads to, hey, what if 
you know, we found a way to make that work with the wormhole. God, I keep saying wormhole, and now every time I think, uh, what if we made it work on the other side with the with the Dominion, right? And but but to get there, I think they were trying to lean into their what they had identified as their strength. Well, I think one of the things that we love about Andor is it takes the, the politic political machinations of the Star Wars universe very seriously, you know. And one of the great things about this troika of episodes of Deep Space Nine was it also took the politics of the Federation and the politics of dancing and made them very real and very, you know, uh, and treated it in a way that was very compelling, which it hadn't always done in the past. Yeah, you know, it was sort of like, oh, we can't violate the prime directive, you know, okay, we get that. But this was, this created this really interesting tapestry of events and the Bajorans and the Cardassians. And tapestry. And, and, and the Federation and, and Deep Space Nine and Cisco being caught in the middle. And, and it was really interesting. And of course, it was laying the groundwork for what was to come. And at the heart of this was, uh, Frank Langella as Mr. Jarrow, who was a fantastic character, you know, very sinister, but at the same time, uh, you know, as Rob would say, he was an antagonist, not a villain, because he had a very strong point of view. And also, by casting him, it immediately gave the goings-on a gravitas it might not have otherwise had if they had just cast somebody from central casting. Right, I mean, yeah. they probably could have found somebody great because, you know, Junie Lowry and the the casting people. Ron, all, Surma, Ron, yeah. Surma. Ron Surma. They did a great job. And... um but that was that was when they would when they would go that way, like when they would get a Gene Simmons or a or a um, David Warner or somebody like that. Ace they Freeman. always went they always went big, and yeah. um, it, this was a great get. And I I remember when this first no Fred Astaire, no. And this was what ninety four because Deep Space Nine. Oh, no, it would have started in ninety three, the second season, because mm -hmm. it started in in January of ninety three. And boy, what what a get! And what yeah. a way to sh open the season and what a way to say Deep Space Nine is here to play. Yep, absolutely. And then speaking of Deep Space Nine, at number 58, it's another Deep Space Nine character. And, you know, if you told me early on in Deep Space Nine's life that this character would make our list of 101 greatest Star Trek characters, I would have thought you were crazy. But the writers uh, just developed this character uh, and the actor, and made it into something wonderful. And the loss of this actor, who is a friend of all of ours on this podcast, mm -hmm. the great Aaron Eisenberg, was a, a terrible loss. Uh, he lived and breathed this character. He was sensational. Of course, I'm talking about the Frangie Nog. Great set tonight, Vic. Thanks. Lots of familiar faces in the crowd. Did I see Ram and Lita out there? They came for a while. What do you think about moving the crap tables over to the south wing and expanding the slot machines out into here. Good idea. Yeah. I'll think it over. But we're supposed to meet with the architect tomorrow morning. Not anymore. It's time for you to go, kid. Go where? You know where. It's time to end the program. <laughs> but we've got work to do. We have a casino to build. No, we don't. This is just a fantasy. It's not real. It's real to me, and it's real to you. And don't say it isn't. I know better. You're right. It's very real to me. But I'm a hologram, Nog. I'm not a person. Till you came along, I'd never been on for more than six or seven hours straight. I know. And now you're running all the time. Isn't it great? Who started as sort of the annoying son of Rom, who would pal around with Jake on the promenade and get in all kinds of trouble. But as time went on, 
he decided that uh, he didn't want to be like his uncle Quark. He didn't want to be this rascally rabbit that was uh, stealing, uh, uh, stealing and, and profiting uh, and, and taking supplies and working against it. But he wanted to be a member of Starfleet. And uh, he goes to the academy and he ends up being a, 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 a great honor and a great pride to his family. And in one of the most powerful arcs in uh, deep, later seasons of Deep Space Nine, he loses a leg uh, in, a, in a battle and has to... Uh, Except, you know, that this is this has happened, and with the help of um, uh, uh, Vic, I was gonna say Vic Damone, with the help of uh, <laughs> with the help of, of Vic, Vic back, Vic, uh, Vic, Vic Fontaine, uh, <laughs> he 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 kind of uh, is able to deal with his PTSD and this this horrible loss. And I mean, uh, yeah. it's 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 really great. And of course, we had a, a lot of fun with the great Aaron Eisenberg. Um, we, yeah. we met him. Uh, Rob and I met him for the first time in Paris at a convention in Paris where we spent uh, many days uh, enjoying and yelling soccer blue out of car windows and uh, just and partying and having a fantastic time. It was fantastic. And with him and Rod Roddenberry, actually. <laughs> and uh, Max Grudenchik. And Max Grudenchik. It was, it was, fun was had by all. And you know who was the guest next year? Michael Pillar. I told Michael Pillar what fun we had. He said, I'd like to go to Paris. I said, well, we'll always have Paris, Mark. And, <laughs> but and Michelle Phillips no truth, was not there. There's no truth to the fact that uh, anyone called the character Legnaut. Oh, oh my no. God! Oh man, too soon, too soon. So, so, anyway, but Nog again, it uh, really is a testament to the writers on Deep Space Nine that they were able to take, you know, which was basically a Wesley-like character on uh, a Weasley Wesley-like character <laughs> on Deep Space Nine and turn him into something uh, so very special and uh, brilliantly performed by uh, the wonderful Aaron Eisenberg, and whose loss continues to be felt to this day. Well, okay. we we should move to number fifty-seven then, which would be that was you, a moment Darren. of silence. Yeah, it we was were, a moment of silence. You know, we were oh, taking I a was, moment for in memory of uh, Aaron, who is uh, such that. a wonderful. Well, clearly, you have yeah. no sympathy. I, uh, <laughs> you lack a heart, sir. But uh, yeah, but obviously, uh, I don't. Yes, he's like Picard. <laughs> he 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 has that that little heart. He needs Pulaski to come and repair it. Um, I wonder if Pulaski will be on our list. Okay, fifty-seven, Darren Doctorman. Tell us I'm 57. Uh, I am enamored with a a girl who is not real. Her name is Minuet. No, Minuet. What's your name? Tell me you love jazz. My name is Minuet, and I love all jazz, except Dixieland. Why not Dixieland? You can't dance to it. My girl. What's a knockout like you doing in a computer-generated gin joint like this? Waiting for you. Waiting for me? You can't be serious. Oh, yes, Will. I've never been more serious in my life. You've grown accustomed to her face. I knew it. That's right. The uh... His name is Robert Paulson. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, trombone-loving holodeck hussy. No, she's not a hussy. She's a very, she's a very good girl. And uh, Riker falls for her madly, uh, not knowing that she is a creation of the Binars uh, culture and uh, is merely an echo of their civilization 
in the computer. Um, she's uh, played by actress Carolyn McCormick uh, with a very strange uh, affectation. I mean, I, I think she's sort of playing like a fake girl a little bit. Uh, certainly her makeup says that. Uh, and it's it's just very odd. But, you know, obviously uh, she uh, is very uh, memorable to Riker. Uh, and uh, so much so that uh, when uh, Tomalak, uh, or the image of Tomalak, uh, probes Riker's mind for a uh, family uh, that he might have, she is uh, the wife. And uh, that's one of the clues that uh, tell Riker that uh, he is uh, not in reality. Um, it says a lot that they, they're able to probe Riker's mind and he comes up with a holographic woman. Well, like that's that's what it, they it find. It means that he mind. has an internet uh, addiction. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you what else it means. Um, and, and first of all, I think you know she is a she is a terrific character, and she's got I think a, a, a great chemistry um, as and a character with bone. Riker. It, yeah, she loves the bone. Um, and you know the actress I think has great chemistry with Frakes. Yeah, she does. And what is telling to me is, I, I mean, okay, Riker. And Troy, sure. What? Okay, I'm awake. What? Uh, Riker and Troy, Imzadi, whatever. Okay. Oh. Um, but uh, the relationship with Minuet felt felt real. It felt like it actually had some heat to it. Um, well, it's even yeah, Picard it's, notices it. It's, yeah, it's because it's like, she actually reacted to him. I think the Binars knew Riker better than the writers did. <laughs> yeah. Or they knew humanity better. The, the Binars right. knew what was up. Well, yeah, you know what I mean, was so interesting her performance because there's two uh, minuets. There's the minuet, the regular holodeck minuet, and then right. there's the one once they upgrade Microsoft ninety five to uh, a better. Uh, right. You know, they get the it gets it gets booted to the next update. Windows two thousand, yeah. By the yeah, and uh, and 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 then she's you know super minuet, and it's so interesting to see that. Although it's kind of weird because she's not like quite that real in the original version, but of course yeah. every time we've seen the holodeck, everyone's completely real, right. but. If you just go with it, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's funny that, uh, you know, famously the binary said, you might have said no. Minuet would never say no. <laughs> That's no, exactly. Exactly. But what a great character and what a great uh, hint of the things that were to come that the show would really uh, find itself and take off. And, and finally, a great uh, role for John, John Frakes. And, yeah. you know, that came because Maurice Hurley you know, asked him a little bit about himself and he talked about how he played the uh, the trombone. He was also able to get that twinkle in his eye in his performance mm -hmm. when he was playing opposite her. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he was great when you got to give him dialogue where he wasn't having to shout orders, where he yeah. could actually have a Run conversation. Order. I mean, that's why he's able to play so well off of, um, you know, other actors, you know, in conversation rather yeah. than the sort of stoic man in command, which is just not that all that interesting. Yeah, okay, when, he's so looking, pretty, when he's looking down his nose, he's not very interesting. But, um, I mean, that's why even, you know, with Picard season two, with Ed Nepenthe is an episode that people seem to like, because you know, just because, you're, you know, it's Riker and Troy, you know, getting to talk to each other and have a conversation. And making okay. pizza. And making pizza. Because what isn't <laughs> exciting about that? Okay, so um, number 56, we're back to Ashley Edward Miller. And I bet that must mean... We're back on board Deep Space Nine. <laughs> we are indeed back are indeed. on Deep Space Nine. Now, a mere few minutes ago, we were talking about 
uh, the, uh, the the very strong one-two punch that the first season of Deep Space Nine went out on. And the first of those punches was an episode uh, called Duet, which you know people who are regular listeners to this podcast, and especially people who've listened to our holiday specials, know uh, that it came in rather high uh, in our list of uh, of great uh, Star Trek episodes. The the, uh, the the last time we did this this exercise, um, how high was it? I want to say it was in the it was at least in the top twenty. I feel like it was might have been in the top ten, but I could be wrong. Um, because I, I don't have the list like sitting in front of me, but I know it was high. Uh, but it's a great episode. It's a, it's on paper. It's a, uh, it's an episode about Major Kira. But the show is just owned, stolen, and then owned um, by actor Harris Eulen, uh, actor of film, stage, and television, uh, who is playing a file clerk named Amin Maritza. Let me guess. You've come back to learn the secret of my filing system. I know all your secrets now. Is that so? What did you do? Did you kill the real Maritza so you could take his place? Well, you'll pay for that death and all the others you're responsible for. Well, I don't think I could pay for all of them, Major. There were so many. And you can only execute me once. It's my only regret. But I'll settle for knowing that Bajor will finally have the satisfaction of punishing the butcher of Galatep. Tell me, Major, did you figure this out all by yourself? Or did you have help from your Federation masters? I'll let you wonder about that. It'll keep you occupied while we're waiting for the provisional government to prepare your war crimes tribunal. War crimes? How could there be war crimes when there hasn't been a war? Oh, I can understand your wish that there had been a war. Your need to indulge some pathetic fantasy about brave Bajoran soldiers marching to honorable defeat. But in fact, Major, you and I know there was no war, no glory. Bajor didn't resist. It surrendered. The Bajorans were a peaceful people before you came. We offered no threat to you. We could never understand why you had to be so brutal. Well, we can't have that, Major. I want no more secrets between us. Anything you don't understand, I'll explain to you. Thank you, but I think I've heard enough of your lies. What lies? You mean my failure to divulge my true identity? Believe me, Major, I yearn to tell you, but I knew how much more satisfaction you would have if you found out for yourself, and that was my only deception. Maritza was a magnificent file clerk, and I, Galdahil, I hope you'll not think it immodest of me to say so, but I was a magnificent leader. Oh, you never saw Galatep at its height. For a labor camp, it was the very model of order and efficiency. And why? For that, you have to look to the top, to me! Who was a file clerk at a camp, not like a summer camp, but like a concentration camp, a work camp, uh, during the occupation of Bajor. Um, and uh, in the episode when we first meet him, we are led to believe that he is a character uh, named Gul Darheel, who was the uh, who was the the commandant of that camp and was responsible for incredible atrocities. And he was like Werner Kempler. Yeah, and what 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 Kira discovers over the course of the episode is that in fact it can't possibly be Gul Darheel. So what is it? You know, what is it that drives this man um, to pretend to be Gul Darheel, knowing that now that he is in captivity, that the Bajorans will execute him? Right, um, that he will pay the ultimate price for his crimes, and Harris Eulen gives just a stunning performance, an awesome 
speech that I would compare favorably to Stellan Skarsgård's speech at the end of what episode ten. Of Andor, uh, yeah, that was episode ten, yeah. Uh, where or he Clank's lays- speech in Hogan's Heroes. Yes, exactly. It's I see nothing. No, that's that's, that's uh, Schultz. Sergeant Schultz. Sorry, Hogan. Uh, no, the uh, the the explanation is, is it's awesome. It's fantastic, and he he lays out how you know he watched all of these atrocities happen, and he did nothing. And this is the fate that he believes that he deserves. That if they knew he was just a file clerk, they would let him go. And he wouldn't be punished. And he desperately wants to be punished because it's the only way that he knows to process the guilt uh, for his inaction in the in the face of horror. It's he's just he's an awesome character. He's incredibly well written um, and uh, just next level performance by uh, by Harris Ulan. Yeah, I, I gotta say, this is another bottle show. This is another like the drumhead before you know, after it or before it. Uh no, after it. Um whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the like the drumhead, this was an episode that was made at the end of the season. It was a penultimate episode of the season. Uh, you know, save money. And it is certainly probably the best episode of the first season. It's one of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine, one of the best episodes of Star Trek. And again, mm-hmm. it's about something. It's it, it's a very powerful performance, as you said, from Harris Yulin as Maritza, um, and it says a lot about culpability. And and sadly, the issues that it's dealing with, you know, it was very much um, Robert Shaw's play, The Man in Glass Booth, which was about mm-hmm. the Holocaust and the Nazis. But you know, this could just as easily be now about the Russian uh, the Russian war uh, against Ukraine. I mean, yeah. it, unfortunately, it's just as relevant now as ever, and it's a very powerful episode. But in, in this case, we're talking about characters and what a memorable and uh, a great character with a tour de force performance by Harris Hewlin. And of course, Nana uh, was his sparring partner and deserves equal amount of credit for the wonderful performance she gives. Completely. She's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And that brings us to number 55. And Aaron, uh, Darren, the air is the or whatever air. your name is. Darren, right. <laughs> I, I, Aaron I, Ackerman. <laughs> the air is the air, is it not, Darren? <laughs> it, it is, in fact. And uh, where else are we going to go to get all of Vulcan in one package? Package? Um, then uh, the amazing uh, Tapao, the only person to turn down a seat in a Federation council. Spoke. Are our ceremonies for outworlders? They are not outworlders. They are my friends. Uh, to Pau, uh, uh, as Nimoy said, uh, let us know that uh, Vulcan is a matriarchy. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's quite wonderful to see uh, the uh, wonderful actress Celia Lofsky uh, uh, basically come and chew the scenery along with everybody else at uh, at Spock's uh, ceremony. And uh, it's uh, it's famous that uh, she couldn't really do the uh, Vulcan uh, hand signal. And, it hurts uh, worse than the uniform. It hurts worse than the uniform. Apparently, her uh, fingers were uh, tied together by very uh, thin uh, uh, thread, and uh, she pops up her hand and then puts it back down because she couldn't hold it. But uh, it doesn't uh, matter. It doesn't matter because Celia Lofsky gives such um, uh, weight to that role, 
as as frail uh, an older woman as she was, she really exuded power, and mm-hmm. she could uh, she could talk down anybody, and she could yell Royka louder than anyone, and uh, she was really something to see uh, this uh, this symbol of all of Vulcan, and uh, she's a really fascinating character, and. Uh, you know, one of the things about uh, her character, and certainly in um, Amok Time, is that uh, she is there to tell the audience what the heck is going on. And uh, she's she, Basil Exposition. That's correct. Uh, she's given all these lines to explain to ostensibly Kirk and McCoy uh, what is happening, but uh, in reality, it's to help the audience understand what's happening. He's, it is to the death. <laughs> this is to the death. I thought you knew, idiots. Um, and, uh, you know, Spock is uh, in the middle of the plateau, the blood fever. Um, and uh, it's it's really fascinating. And uh, in Ted Sturgeon's uh, script for the uh, for the episode, it's uh, it's really fun to get this glimpse of Spock's history. Well, Ted and the unwritten, uh, the uncredited rewrite of DC Fontana. Of course. And obviously, but I was just going to say, they create an entire culture yeah. out of whole cloth. It's amazing. That's correct. The ancient civilization with the music and, and the instruments and yeah. the costumes and the performances. It the sells gongs. it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I mean, it's just an extraordinary, what a way to start a season. You know, it's I mean, just, how would it have been to have a Vulcan gong show? Ugh, I couldn't even watch the other gong show with Chuck <laughs> Barris. Uh, but this was just, uh, you know, remarkable. And, 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 and Celia Lofsky has such gravitas in the role, and it's, she's yeah. so great. And, of um, course, the, the character was brought back in Well, I was just going to say, she four, comes back in Enterprise. Of, uh, Enterprise, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a fun episode to uh, sort of see her beginnings, and uh, she plays a pivotal role in uh, whatever Archer is up to, so that's great. But... I uh, my Tapau is uh, from the '60s, and uh, there she will stay. I think, though, that it should also be recognized that this is also one of the forward-thinking aspects of Star Trek, in that making this society, it was unexpected that Vulcan was a matriarchy, mm-hmm. much less have a woman in a role. I mean, people talk about the go-go boots and the mini skirts, and it's always forgotten what strong female characters that the original series brought us. And Tapal might very well be the strongest of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, even the viewer, I remember as a kid thinking, oh, I'm not going to cross her. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. She's scary. She, re- she was scary. And, but she, she demanded respect. Yeah. yeah. Even Captain Kirk had a kind of def- was deferential to her. Of course. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's uh, they had a fooler. Boy, I'd like to find out when she found out that Spock was still alive. Oh, yeah. Oh. She was probably pissed off. Yeah, well, Kirk yeah. was still alive. Yeah. Was yeah, 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 yeah. When Kirk, the Kirk was still alive. So, uh, but a great, a great, a great character, a great episode, super memorable. And 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 again, William, uh, where Tice, you know, he has this. Everyone says, oh, he does all the sexy stuff, and you know, it's like uh, something you threw on and missed. But look at that. No, he's uh, a designer for all seasons. Yeah, he, look he at what he did with Tapau. Yeah, you you totally believe that she is, you know, this high ranking. Uh, person in Vulcan society. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Okay. Well, that brings us to number 54, and we talked about him just a minute ago, a minuet ago, and of course, ah. we're talking about none other than William T. Riker. What am I still doing here? Deanna, I pushed myself hard to get this far. I, 
I sacrificed a lot. I always said I wanted my own command, and yet something's holding me back. Is it wrong for me to want to stay? What do you think? Maybe I'm just afraid of the big chair. I don't think so. The captain says Shelby reminds him of the way that I used to be. And he's right. She comes in here full of drive and ambition, impatient, taking risks. I look at her and I wonder what happened to those things in me. I like those things about me. I've lost something. You mean you're older? More experienced? A little more seasoned? Seasoned? It's a horrible thing to say to a man. I don't think you've lost a thing. And I think you've gained more than you realize. You're much more comfortable with yourself than you used to be. Maybe that's the problem. I'm too comfortable here. I'm not sure I know what that means. You're happy here. Happier than I've ever known you to be. So, it comes down to a simple question. What do you want, Will Riker? The man of the nautical beard. It's it's amazing how, how what a difference a beard can make. Yeah. Uh, because of course, uh, uh, William T. Riker was very milk toast that first season of Next Gen, and then during the off season, during the writer's strike, he shows up at the office, say hello to Gene. He has a beard that he's sporting, and Gene says, "Oh, I like the beard. Why don't we keep it? It's very nautical." Yeah. And uh, much like uh, Avery, first, many years later, in the uh, first he, season, the biggest decision he made was uh, trying to have an apple. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, they didn't really know what to do with him. They knew he was kind of like son of Kirk. Yeah. But we all know how those work out, like son of Godzilla, mm-hmm. son of Kong. They were very good. So, uh, so, but then Riker, they started to discover um, what to do with Riker. And um, uh, it suddenly became a much more interesting character. And uh, you know, to his credit, you know, John Frakes is terrific in the role and later became a very accomplished and, and, and talented director. Uh, he directed the first contact. He directed some of the best episodes of Next Generation, went on and directed for many other shows as well. And uh, it's a really fun character. And, you know, I always remember back in the day when I would interview him for Cinefantastic and he said, he would always say, every, even at the end, at the very end of Next Generation, you know, he said, I, I miss that we never had, he said, the irony and the relationship that Kirk, Spock and McCoy had in the original series. We just never had that on the show. And and so like even then he would acknowledge that like there was just something missing in the way that these characters were written. Which isn't to say the next generation wasn't a great show. It was, and these were great characters. But you know, it was just there was something... no conflict. Sorry. Yeah, because there was no conflict. And, and no that, uh... conflict. They also didn't I mean, they they tried they gave him a father in the second season that he was estranged from. But they never made Riker a fully realized person. Well, they did. They did. When they split him into two characters and the yeah, other one second is a good chances. Yeah. Actually, I, I was going to say that uh, in rising the defense of, of Will Riker, who, by the way, got fired upon more than anybody in Star Trek history. Fire, yeah, fire at Will. It was yes. always, all of the time. Um, he was, like, I loved him in both parts of Best of Both Worlds. I think like he found his voice in that, right? Especially like once. Oh, he's in, great um, in best of both worlds. Going you know, up against Shelby. Like, well, because he had, he, but you know, he, he had, had a foil. about to intervene. I mean, yeah. that's awesome. But he had Shelby. He had somebody that he could play off of, yes. who's actually gunning for his job. Exactly. And what, what I mean was, they had a great actor in in Frakes, 
And but they never gave him they didn't give him enough of a personality. Yeah. He was not a very nuanced guy. And when they gave him something like, oh, he plays trombone, but they should have made him, they should have filled his character with jazz, not playing it. Mm. But he was a jazzy guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. And they and needed they never a Shelby did that. for him, like all the time. Right. Well, because you know, when was he better than like, you know, uh, you know, you 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 go over my head like that yeah, again, I yeah. will snap you back so totally. hard that you think you're a first year cadet mm -hmm. again. I'm like, you go. Is he that such is awesome. a dynamic guy in real life? Yeah. He's such an interesting, avuncular, yep. you know, personable, interesting guy. And they never really captured that in the character. And um, it's interesting because you're right. I mean, Best of Both Worlds is fantastic. And occasionally you see glimmers of it in like Frame of Mind, which is really interesting. And then in First Contact, the, the, oh. the episode. With which Pete he, Newworth. I've always Newworth. wanted to make love to an alien. Okay. Which is, which is 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 really is really fun, um, and you know whenever you got to play like these mirror versions, like a future imperfect or parallels or stuff like that, they, it was always some fun stuff to be mine there. But um, you know, ultimately, you know that what that was definitely an element that was uh, lacking from the show, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Terry does with him in Picard season three. Can I can I just confirm? Nope. No, just peak Riker. He is having the is best. Is that time. another clone? Yeah, no, Peak. No. Peak Rikers. Peak Tommy. <laughs> season three, he's never been better, okay. and he's never had more of a time, more of an opportunity to shine. Yeah, because he's been looking. He, you know, he's been looking for that those chances to shine. You know, you want to you want to see him in, embrace. You know, get, get something to chew on, something meaty. Yeah. It almost felt like they always gave it to Patrick because Patrick was number one on the call sheet, and you know he was the star, and the Data was the quirky, weird guy. You know, and 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 he had this you know Spock-like character. But you know, it's like, uh, and and it, they never really knew exactly what to do with um with Riker and Lieutenant was, Commander Data, the quirky, weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, but um. But you know there are some some great episodes. You're absolutely right about best of both worlds, boy. We, and, and I think part of the thing that worked against him was he was always saying no to command, yeah. and it made him look weak. It was like, yeah. wait a second, at what point are you going to say yes and they you know send him away on another ship for a couple episodes, you know, because and destroy it and then have him come back or whatever you need to do. But by him turning down and wanting to stay as the number two, that doesn't obviously, make him cool. Obviously, his career advisor was not George Takei. Right, which, which they made text in Best of Both Worlds. Like, yeah. why somebody like you sits in the shadow of a great man. Right, right. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's it's pretty fantastic. Yeah, because that was so easy. He could have said yes, and then the ship was destroyed, and he couldn't go. But yeah. it's like, the lack of ambition, it's kind of like he's kind of a little too laid back. It's like, well, I still have a lot to learn from you, Captain Picard. It's like, it's like okay, it's been seven seasons. Like, yeah, what are you going to, come on. Got a lot of healthcare secrets. Here? You've learned, you don't surrender the ship. Yeah. Oh, exactly. that's not what you learned from Picard. Oh, yeah, right. You learned you, <laughs> you learned to play the flute. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, okay. Even though you're a saxophonist. Okay. Or trombonist or whatever. So, so uh, okay, well, that's William T. William T. I Riker. William T. Riker at number uh, 54. He's number 53. Ashley, tell yes. us who or what is waiting for us at number 53. Who? Well, I'll tell you what's waiting for us. At number 53, the beginning, the end, the one who is many, the Borg. The Borg have a collective consciousness. There are no individuals. 
beginning, the end, the one who is many. Do you control the Borg Collective? You imply a disparity where none exists. I am the Collective. Perhaps I should rephrase the question. I wish to understand the organizational relationships. Are you their leader? I bring order to chaos. An interesting, if cryptic, response. You are in chaos, Data. You are the contradiction, a machine who wishes to be human. Since you seem to know so much about me, you must be aware that I am programmed to evolve, to better myself. We too are on a quest to better ourselves, evolving toward a state of perfection. Forgive me, but the Borg do not evolve. They conquer. By assimilating other beings into our collective, we are bringing them closer to perfection. Somehow, I question your motives. That is because you haven't been properly stimulated. The Borg Queen, who first appeared in uh, Star Trek First Contact, uh, later appeared... <laughs> or some in, would say first appeared in Hellraiser. Yes, also true. Uh, later appeared in several episodes of Star Trek Voyager, uh, originally played by Alice Krieger, who played her in Star Trek First Contact and then uh, returned to the role uh, for uh, the it, the uh, for the end of uh, of Voyager for Endgame um, after being played for several episodes by Susanna Thompson. Um, I mean, the thing about the the Borg Queen that was that was cool. Okay, so I'm going to present two sides of an argument here. On one hand, as a character, especially as Alice Krieger played her. She was incredibly interesting. She had exactly the right seductive quality that you needed from her. Um, and, you know, the fact that she was, you know, in pieces and she had to be constructed, that was a cool idea. Um, you know, the the choices that Alice Krieger made in terms of how she used her voice, uh, you know, especially when you, the, one of the, the strongest associations I think we have with the Borg, other than it's dudes walking around like in, you know, clunky, like cyber gimp suits, uh, is, you know, that choral quality to their voice speaking in unison. So if you're going to have a character who speaks and it is only them, they can't sound like this. <laughs> you know, it's like they have to have a voice. Like Jerry uh, Lewis? <laughs> hey, lady. <laughs> hey, Picard. Uh, <laughs> they have to have a voice that like sells that they're the board. Um, and she and she feels scary, like legit scary. It's like, yeah. I mean, you know, you make sort of the, 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 the Hellraiser joke, but it's kind of true. Like she does have a very Clive Barker feel to her, a very Cenobite feel to her, which I groove on, which I completely dig. Well, and I love honestly, her, her she's content. more like the Queen and Captain EO. Well, that was one of the influences uh, on her, apparently. Um, although it's like the Captain Neo thing is a little weird. It's like, uh, but <laughs> we can have a whole conversation about Captain Neo and Michael Jackson. Just show me your children. Um, 
neither here nor there on the other side. Right. It has nothing to do with the character. It has to do with like the conception of the Borg. I think that the Borg were always scariest when they did not have a single voice. Yes. They were the most alien then. They were the most unreasonable in the best possible way. And the the moment that they were given a voice, even when it was locutus, right? When it was kind mm -hmm. of scary because it was our Picard who had been changed and that's why it worked. Um, it, it diminished them. Um, and the fact that it kept coming back to that, I think, diminished them. The, the Borg are definitely an alien race that, you know, you're sort of excited when you hear that they're coming back, but then you're like, is that really going to make me feel less? It's They were kind of written out of being frightening. Yeah, exactly. They just kept showing up and they weren't scary anymore. And then apparently, I guess the Borg Queen came back for some other show. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's know. funny because... Um, Again, we're, we're we're treading on these episodes rather than the characters. Right. Yeah. I think we all agree that the Borg were much more interesting without, uh, you know, a queen. You know, with it wasn't yeah. a beehive. It was uh, they. It was you know, you couldn't stop with them. You couldn't reason. They were just this this giant entity that was all connected, and and that was like in Q Who, which was terrifying. You know, um, and and obviously, you know, Locutus and Best of Both Worlds was terrifying. They used you know, Picard to communicate with us. That made sense. Now, when they introduced the character of the Borg Queen at first contact, again, it's not about whether or not this kid, they did, it, it exists, right? right? Okay, they didn't go the way we would have gone. Does the Borg Queen as a character, is that interesting? Yes, and that's yes. largely attributable to Alice Krieger, who did such a wonderful job of making her creepy and cool. And yeah. obviously ILM, you know, who does that great thing where they lower her into the body and connect the head and all that. That was in the trailer, and we all loved that moment and uh, thought it was really cool. So in that sense, yes, the Borg Queen is a great character. Whether it was good for the Borg, I mean, my God, I was watching Pluto this weekend and Descent was on, which I always remember being an awful episode. And, you know, I watched it again and I realized, wow, this is an awful episode. This is an atrocious episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say, you know, the one thing about it's... Uh, unfortunately, uh, the great thing about the Borg was it it could have been an incredible science fiction concept. And I remember watching it in my own mind. I thought, what if an idea to become transhuman, you know, using technology to ex elongate life or whatever, kind of like the way that uh, the Will Smith I Am Legend movie played right. out, like, oh, we have a cure for cancer. And it turns out, no, you don't. There's just one and, catch. And, and the thing about the Borg is that it's technology run amok and it is consuming sentient life. And there there is no intelligence behind it. Like, that's what I got from Q-Who. That's what, like, Mark was, was going for. The thing about Alex Krieger is that she, I mean, my God, as far as a pulp sci-fi fantasy villainess, she threw her all into mm -hmm. that performance. You know, let your future's end or whatever. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was uh, watching her in that movie. Look, uh, as, she'll as much even, as it, she'll even blow on your arm hair. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, it was, it, 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 and I would say this, it did the antithesis of what I want from Star Trek. It created a pulp sci-fi villainous, the Darth Vader of the Star Trek universe, but yeah. female. And and from that perspective, as much as I philosophically argue against what that represents, it still it really worked for.
for first contact. She's yeah. there really so we don't there. have to see thousands and thousands of Borg drones walking around the Enterprise. Yeah, and and I mean, she's just fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, she, she'd be fun I, to hang out with. I she'd hate the conception of her. I hate... I hate that it it, it 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 led Star Trek down a road I wish it never went down. On a long but, road? Getting from there? No, sorry, that's a different but but, yeah. but you know what I mean. It was yeah. it it was unfortunate, but and and people take the wrong lessons away from the Borg Queen. Yeah. Yes. Yes, they do. And then <laughs> she, she was, was great. ubiquitous in Voyager. Uh, yeah. Susanna Thompson and I think that player. sometimes Star Trek excels at learning the wrong lessons from itself. So that brings us to number 52. Darren Doctorman is back with an interesting pairing. Well, uh, these two uh, characters uh, are basically the same character, barring, <laughs> barring rules from the WGA. And uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, of course, talking about uh, 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 Nick Locarno, uh, a cadet first class in uh, Starfleet Academy, and Tom Paris. That ship was under the command of another former Starfleet officer, named Chakotay. I understand you knew him. That's right. The two of you didn't get along too well, I'm told. Chakotay will tell you he left Starfleet on principle to defend his home colony from the Cardassians. I, on the other hand, was forced to resign. He considered me a mercenary, willing to fight for anyone who'd pay my bar bills. Trouble is, he was right. I have no problem helping you track down my friends in the Maquis, Captain. All I need to know from you is what's in it for me. You help us find that ship. We help you at your next outmate review. Uh-huh. Officially, you'd be a Starfleet observer during the mission. Observer? Oh, hell, I'm the best pilot you could have. You'll be an observer. When it's over, you're cut loose. Story of my life. Um, they are, look, let's face it, they are the same character. They were written to be the same character until uh, there was a change in policy by, uh, by Rick Berman. And uh, they are played by the same actor. Um, that uh, people say was a mistake. I don't think it was a mistake, not at all. Uh, Look, I'm I'm not a great fan of uh, Tom Paris as a character because he's kind of uh, he's kind of two dimensional. He's just sort of grumpy, you know, and uh, he just he doesn't like whatever situation he's in. Okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I actually I actually liked uh, Nick Locarno better uh, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he he at least was was trying to do good. He made bad decisions, but he was trying to be the best. And striving to do that and failing is far more interesting than being sort of half-assed and uh, being grumpy with your situation like uh, Tom Paris was. Um, I, uh, I, I like the fact that, uh, uh, that Nick Locarno was sort of looked up to by Wesley Crusher. And, uh, and he sort of uh, fell out of grace for just one silly mistake. Okay, it cost a life. So what? People die every day. 
Oh my space is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my gosh. But uh, yeah, and uh, of course, uh, I don't think that uh, that Tom Paris's uh, character was was used uh, very effectively in Voyager. I think he was sort of overshadowed by uh, other characters around. Uh, he Literally had a, all of them. Yeah. He had he had a couple uh, a couple good moments, but uh, not very many. Uh, I think Robert Duncan McNeil is a is a great actor, and I think mm-hmm. he he did his best with what he was given uh, in both instances. Uh, uh, but uh, I you know I I would rather have had Nick Locarno in Voyager than Tom yeah. Paris. Agree, and it, it, indulge me a moment to suggest that what worked about Nick Locarno is that he played very much like a young Jim Kirk. Totally. Um, who had, who had, who had fact, bad made, luck. Yeah. Bad and bad, luck and and made bad decisions. Because yeah. he was young. Yep. He made a mistake because he was young. Yeah. And he had all the potential in the world, but he had a swagger to him that you don't generally see in the next generation. It's like, no wonder Wesley looked up to him. Right. And yeah. like, and Robbie McNeil played that perfectly. Totally. And I think if that character had been explicitly brought to Voyager with that with that baggage, that it would have been, um, I think it would have been a very different experience, even if he was largely per, like fulfilling the same function. Because I, I think that that like, oh, okay, I'm a young Jim Kirk who, who made a mistake. It's like, now I have a path towards redemption. Like with Tom Paris, yeah. he had something like that in his backstory. But it was yeah. backstory. It was yeah. all intellectual garbage. None of so it was could, present in his in his current being. Not at all. You couldn't. Yeah. There was no way for anybody in the world to write to that or to yeah. make that feel present or to make that feel like anything at all. Then he's just a helmsman who's played by Robbie McNeil, who's nice. Um, yeah. And then once you file that edge off, you're basically stuck in like you know I'm back to vanilla again. But you're stuck yeah. in that same vanilla land. Is it like tofu Voyager. or is it vanilla? It's the tofu and like it's, it's like <laughs> vanilla flavored Voyager tofu. is Jordi LaForge, except like they're not. I mean, I'm not going to say that because they're all lovely people and there's a lot of great actors on that show. But um, but he is just, he doesn't have that edge anymore. They assert the edge like they do with all those characters, but the edge is never present. Um, I totally, uh, the guy was in prison. I yeah. mean, you're absolutely right. And to his credit, you know, Robbie McNeil realized he didn't have a lot to do and like John pursued a directing career and has been very yep. successful at it and Absolutely. has a good directing career. And, and, you know, again, love, lovely actor who was underserved by some, some of the writing. Okay. Well, speaking of Voyager, that brings us back to Rob Burnett, number 51. We're still out there in the Delta quadrant. And we're well, going to get mail for this one. Uh, this is a character that I'm deeply conflicted about because in a way she's a, well, not in a way she was a replacement. Uh, this character was the not the character originally cast in the role. And after shooting for a day, they realized this character with the actress that was playing her didn't work. And they replaced her with a woman, an actress, who was a staple of television at the time. She had been in many different shows. Uh, and I have to say, I always liked this actress. I'm, why Why beat around the bush? It's Kate Mulgrew's Catherine Janeway. On screen. Our sensors show that you are trespassing on our vessel. As I've already informed you, we're attempting to retrieve the console that caused this explosion. 
if you attempt to remove anything from our ship. It will be considered an act of war. You know, I'm really easy to get along with most of the time. But I don't like bullies, and I don't like threats, and I don't like you, Color. You can try and stop us from getting to the truth, but I promise you, if you do, I will respond with all the unique technologies at my command. Janeway out. And I have to say, I, I think, Mark, I think you and I might have watched the Voyager pilot together. We did. And I loved her. I thought she was terrific. She was commanding. There was a humanity in Catherine Janeway that that did not deny her femininity. There's a moment in the pilot where she's um, communicating with her husband and yes. uh, she like leans down to communicate with him. And, and I, there was something very empathetic and very human, but at the same time, I believed her as a captain. Mm -hmm. And I, I really enjoyed her performance. The only thing was, I think she was always let down by the writing. They always made her do stupid things. Right. And as the commander of a starship, she was never allowed. They they could never, as much as she was the first female captain lead actor on a Star Trek show, they never gave her her due. Right. And they always, and as much as I liked her, I liked her in so many different episodes of the show. I liked her personal life and her holodeck business and all of that. They still always undercut her character by never allowing her to go full on captain. Yeah. They always yeah. wanted to make her too nice. She was no Madge Sinclair, that's for sure. She was I, no Madge Sinclair. I, I loved, you know, what they what they wanted her to yep. be. I'll tell you, like, there was a moment where and I can also say not only was it the moment that hooked me, it was then the moment that completely unhooked me from this character. Uh it was their first encounter with the Vidians in the Phage. Right. You know, mm -hmm. And at the end of that episode, man, she gives those guys like a slap down. And, she's, and she basically tells them like, look, if you screw with me or anybody in my crew again, I am going to you up. You know, it's like, and you believed her. Like, right. Kate Mulgrew sells it. And you're like, yeah. You know, like you tell them, like, let's see you kick some ass. And then the Vidians come back and I'm like, She's going to punch him. She's going to kick him right squaw in their diseased little nuts. And then she doesn't do it. I'm like, yeah, okay, you lost me. You lost. She lost me right there. I mean, I, I think that the great tragedy of this character, first of all, she's great in the role. Yep. 100%. I really, I really love her. And, you know, when XO6 made a figure of her, I bought her immediately. I, I, I proudly, I no people <laughs> bought it. People bought her. She sold. I, I really love her. I love her performance, but my God, the writers never got a handle on what to do with her. They uh, because I think they had a real problem reconciling the female. What is a woman and what is a captain? Right. And they never could could like I was really interested in what does the feminine bring to the captaincy that a male can't. And I would have thought that would have been very very interesting, especially in Starfleet. What is what is when when you come and 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 that is a great quality to have. When you're a woman, how do you deal with a space amoeba? Do you deal with it differently than Captain Kirk would have? Because I mean, and and I thought that that would have been like what I love to see is when you take the the traits that characters have 
and build on them and do yeah. something new and interesting. And with Catherine Janeway, I always felt that sometimes they would allow her to be a woman, but most of the time they, they relegated her to this generic captain role. Right. And that they wouldn't let her go full on captain because then somebody would pull back and go, oh, wait a minute, but she's a woman too. Like, no, she's a Starfleet captain. She's earned her commission. She's there for a reason, thrown into the deep end of the pool. Let her be a fucking freaking badass. <laughs> yeah. And she and was I felt so they never, and But she was really good. You know, she was a, a consummate actress and she tore up the part. When she was given something great to do, like, you know, I think of like Year of Hell. Mm -hmm. it was she's great. Awesome, Year of Hell. She kicks ass, and I, I want to see more of that. I mean, she was never bad, but they just right. she was all over the place. It was a very schizophrenic portrayal of a character, but I still loved her. She acquitted herself admirably, and in Endgame, I loved seeing her. Susanna Thompson, she's going head-to-head. -head. It's great. I mean, I, to me, the, the net effect of all that for the character, as opposed to the characterization in the moment by the actress... Um, and in certain scenes as they were written in the context of certain episodes, is that as a captain, I'm like, how the hell did she get promoted to admiral? Like, how did that happen? Right. I, you know, um, but within those moments, like when she shines, right? When she never phoned it in, man. She no. gave it her all. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, you, you locked on to something that's really important. They wrote her like a distaff Picard. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it was, and, and rather than giving her her own quirks and foibles and unique qualities. And well, she and doesn't drink you, tea, she drinks, she drinks coffee. Right. Yeah, so that's and, the difference. And, yeah. and that's too bad because she, she just ate that roll up and, and she yeah. was great. We're and, drinking. uh, but they didn't, um, you know, they didn't embrace the idea of the, you know, first female captain on Star Trek. And it could have been so interesting. And, uh, you know, it's like they didn't want to really give her like relationships because they felt, oh, that's too, too, that's not, you know, I was like, well, why? You know, and it's just, it, we, we talked about this before. They never really embraced the whole idea of being so far away and the chance they would never get home. So it wouldn't just be a ship with a crew and ranks and just like any other uh, thing because they may never come home. And at some point that would break down or they would intentionally reorient the whole thing. And it's just like, uh, it's so many missed opportunities because ultimately it was attempting to capture lightning, the, the, the next generation lightning in the bottle again, and it never, it never did a hundred percent. They should have let it be its own lightning in a different bottle. It, it is interesting to see her come back in Star Trek, uh, Prodigy, you know, first as a hologram and then as the character and, and how they're utilizing her there. And, um, you know, it's too bad that she's not back in live action where she should be. Okay, and that brings us uh, coming uh, on number 51 uh, to wrap up to part four of our countdown. Number 50, Darren Document. Tell us. Number 50. Uh, here we are at a little past the halfway mark. And uh, the actress who played this character, when she was a little girl, she would watch Star Trek. And she would look at the screen and she would see Nichelle Nichols up there playing Lieutenant Uhura. And uh, Lieutenant Uhura was a, uh, a beacon for her because she saw a black woman on TV and uh, her quote, she ain't no maid. Um, I've always loved that story because, uh, of course, years later, 
Whoopi Goldberg became a powerhouse actress and a movie star, and she was still a Star Trek fan. And when the second season of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation was uh, starting up, she made it known to Gene Roddenberry that she would have loved to be a part of The Next Generation. And so Gene Roddenberry created the character of Guinan. May I speak to you, Captain? Actually, Guinan... You know, Picard and I used to talk every now and then when one of us needed to. I guess I'm just used to having the captain's ear. What's on your mind? I've heard a lot of people talking down in 10 forward. They expect to be dead in the next day or so. They trust you. They like you. But they don't believe anyone can save them. I'm not sure anyone can. When a man is convinced he's going to die tomorrow, he'll probably find a way to make it happen. The only one who can turn this around is you. I'll do the best I can. You're going to have to do something you don't want to do. You have to let go of Picard. Maybe you haven't heard. I tried to kill him yesterday. You tried to kill whatever that is on the Borg ship, not Picard. <sighs> Picard is still here with us, in this room. If he had died, it would be easier, but he didn't. It took him from us a piece at a time. Did he ever tell you why we're so close? No. Oh. Then let me just say that our relationship is beyond friendship, beyond family. And I will let him go. And you must do the same. There can only be one captain. It's not that simple. This was his crew. He wrote the book on this ship. If the Borg know everything he knows, it's time to throw that book away. You must let him go, Riker. It's the only way to beat him. The only way to save him. And that is now your chair. Uh, based, uh, the name at least comes from uh, the famous uh, uh, bar owner and uh, perhaps Madam Texas Guinan uh, uh, from the 1800s. And uh, Guinan is the uh, ostensibly the bartender of Ten Forward, the uh, in season two, the brand new lounge and bar, uh, and also restaurant. You can get ice cream there. Uh, <laughs> where, where we should point out. It was called Ten Forward because it was on Deck Ten. Yes, and it was the furthest. That's yes. why that it was called that. Yeah, it wasn't because it was on a certain street in L.A. Just it saying, wasn't, Jesus it wasn't Christ, because of anything else. Let's just say that right now, and I don't care. Um, but uh, <laughs> yes, do. Ten Forward <laughs> is a location on the Enterprise, uh, and that's where the bar was. Um, Look, the character of Guinan is fascinating because of how they wrote her. They wrote her as the uh, as a a wise quote old woman, but she wasn't old. But we learn later she is incredibly old. 
she was around, uh, we learn, uh, hanging out with Samuel Clemens, uh, uh, Mark Twain. She was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. (laughs) Well, maybe. We don't know that yet. Uh, But uh, who knows? Um, Big Jagger does. Well, (laughs) he probably, you know, her and him. Well, yeah, you know, I she was, uh, you know, she did date uh, Frank Langella for a while. There Frank you Langella. go. There you so, go. A little Deep Space Nine, uh, a Next Generation crossover. Sorry, Deep Darren. Space indeed. I'm trying to tell a story here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just making it up as I go, as as usual. But uh, look, Guinan's, uh, every little bit that we learn about Guinan's people uh, and the mystery of her made her very Less interesting. interesting. No, no, no. It, it made her very interesting. Look, when she confronts Q with her, with her strange... Uh, oh, that was know, great. That was the that only was time. Great. That yeah, was yeah. great. In Q who? That was great. In but, Q but who? once you get no. to Generations no, 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 and she's I'm not escaping the Nexus the, I'm not talking and about Times the Arrow look, where she's look. hanging out with Mark Twain. Mark, shut up. Yeah, I'm just Mark. telling you. It's not interesting. I know you're telling. I'm telling you. No, I'm telling you. Let me do something. <laughs> I, I I thought that in the series, uh, every little bit that we learned about Gein and, and her people was interesting. And it was completely thrown out with Generations because it sort of gave a silly backstory that didn't really make any sense. And uh, why should she know everything about uh, the Nexus? It's silly. So, look, I like the character of Guinan in uh, Next Gen. Um, and uh, that's fine. That's all it should be. She comes you know, from a race of listeners. Yeah. They yeah. listen. None that are Fairly, on the show. Yeah. We're all talkers. <laughs> um, I think here's, I'm going to try to split the difference between Mark and Darren. Maybe, maybe that's my choice. Right so down the middle. Right down the middle. That I think whenever we learned things about Guinan in a way that raised a question about Guinan, it worked. Yes. Whenever we learned things that were that gave an hey, answer, did you know, yep. it, it, it was like not lost. Work. Yes. So again, the best of both worlds example. It's like did right. Captain Picard ever tell you, you know, why we're so close? You know, well, you know, just suffice it to say that what we are is beyond friendship, it's beyond family. Mm-hmm. And I never want to know what that means. Yeah. Yep. And we but still don't know what that we means. We still don't Thank know goodness. what that means. And, well, and she's the MacGuffin for yesterday's Enterprise too, which we quite yeah. don't know. That's right. But it tells she's you great that in yesterday's Enterprise. And it yeah, yeah you no, forward. but that's good because you don't quite know. She's she was the Mary in the coal ship. mine. No, in the Nexus. No, it's like no, no, no. It's like being wrapped in joy. Almond Joy has no. It's interesting you say the word wrapped because I think that wraps this episode. Yeah, I do. I think so. I just can't believe 30 years later we're still bagging on generations. I just, I can't believe it. I only wish that everyone that listens to this podcast could have seen you as we walked out of the theater <laughs> on the were Paramount you lot. You and I had known each other for only a couple months back then. I'd met you at Comic Con in July. This was in November. In July. Man. It was I a was thing so of irate. I was so irate that day after seeing Generations. So was I, but you got me on the lot, and I'm like, dude, I don't want to get thrown off this lot. I, I was so excited <laughs> about that movie. I wouldn't was so have been excited. the first time, wouldn't have been the last time. Yeah, well. <laughs> and it wouldn't be the last time coming out of Paramount Theater we threw a fit either. <laughs> no. But how great was it that just, just recently we all got to go back to the Paramount lot and see 
the director's edition of the motion. Well, I see you brought it all home. It's totally cyclical. Yeah, we started it with the Star Trek the motion picture, and we ended with Star Trek the motion picture. Which is yeah. pretty much my entire fandom. That's the way it should be. <laughs> is Decker going to make our list? We'll Who find knows? out. I, I don't know. I, Leah's already been on the list. Decker, Decker, I don't even know her. How about we'll, 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 <laughs> what about Ensign Perez? Ensign Perez could yeah. be. Who knows? Or what about a transporter guy? Whatever the came transporter guy. Back. What about Brand? Long. Commander no, Branch? No, the other guy. Oh. Commander Branch. Uh, uh, Epsilon yeah. Nine. Epsilon Nine. Yeah. You know what? Who should be number one? Because he could be anything. Admiral Nagura. That's right. He should no, be number Patrick one. Patrick McGowan. Patrick McGowan. You are number two. Um, oh funny. my God! Okay. Um, well, listen. This was this is uh, this was another great installment of our 101 <laughs> holiday uh, countdown. We'll be back next time with part three, part five. Excuse me, part, part five, five yes. of yeah, our holiday countdown with all all four of us. Um, and uh, it'll be even more like being wrapped in joy. So uh, we hope you'll join us. And of course, you'll rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, you can continue to follow us on Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts. You can follow us on Facebook and Inglorious Trek and hopefully still on Twitter at Inglorious Trek. And if not, maybe we might make the move somewhere else. But right now we're still on Twitter and you can find us there. And uh, you can follow Rob Daly at the Burnett Work. Um, on YouTube. And be, or you on, go to on YouTube. Or you, no, don't go. Don't encourage that. You know, Nobody, well, we I had someone show up randomly at my house in the summer. It was very uh, uh, disconcerting. Weird. That's very scary. You have a stalker. Hey, I've apologized about Commodore that again and again. I was just, I just wanted to see you. Okay. Uh, you know, it was okay. It was fine. We got to yeah. sit. It was, sit, of course, Rob became best friends with them, of course. No. Wow. You, 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 I did. A, you'll talk to anyone. It's, it's like homeless changed. people in San Diego at Comic-Con. Remember that? Oh, uh, yes, we, we do. We in remember. Fact, we were on that street corner. We, we were talking about the days of remember. Lisa Ely and you on the corner of, yeah. Anyway. Yes. Okay. That's for another time, another place. That was not Space 1999. We can't talk. Best Space wow. 1999. Characters. Wow. That was pretty great. Another time, another place. We're going to do that. The the top 100, 1,099 Space oh 1999 God. characters. By the way, Mark, uh, I got to give a big shout out. The The people listening to this can't see it, but Mark is wearing an awesome Tron t-shirt. Yes, he is. It is true. I am. I am watching. I am wearing a it's Tron a, t-shirt. It's a tribute to David Warner. Yep. The late, great David Warner, who, um, who will not be on this list uh, as... Uh, <laughs> As, uh, Sinjin, Sinjin Talbot? Sinjin, Sinjin Talbot, Talbot yeah. 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 Gentlemen, yeah. I'm Caitlin Dar. Is no, she on you're the not. List? We'll Dude, find out. You got to stay Caitlin Dar should out. be number one on everyone's character. <laughs> well, after having uh, talked to Cynthia Gow, I would agree with you. Yes. Yeah. I'll quite, bet. She's quite delightful. Go, and, Bill. Uh, and she well really got, uh, got, uh, got screwed over uh, by, you know, uh, you know, it was much like the Robin Curtis thing where she got some bad direction. Well, listen, listen to our episode featuring. Well, by the time this air, by the time this drops, that one will have already aired. So well, then I, I, I did not know you interviewed her. You didn't yes. tell me. Oh, we you, did. We we you got to follow our uh, our uh, Facebook and. Uh, I do, but I uh, okay, I missed that one. What is Facebooking? Why didn't you call me, man? I want to meet her. What, what, what is that she says in all our yesterdays? To, 
What what's what is Starbucking? Oh, what's Star? Oh, that's Starbucking. That's, 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 oh, that's yes. not our it's, it's the same thing in in that awful. Uh, yeah. That, well, actually, that had a good premise. That uh, Galactica. Remember, they're yeah. they're imprisoned for the crimes of their ancestors. Right. So they're all in prison, and the guards are descendants of the guards, and the prisoners are descendants of the prisoners. That's like an interesting premise. What's library? Is it though? <laughs> Yeah, is that just writers drunk after a four martini lunch? Going, well, remember he had Cora, the Viper, with, the, with the AI, yeah. the Cora AI. <laughs> that would, we, oh, we don't drink at lunch. Come on, you're now. right. Join us dinner. next week for another. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Join <laughs> us. You know, to the clock. Then come on. Well, anyway. So on that, on that note, like, like this countdown hasn't been long enough. On behalf of uh, Rob Meyer Burnett, Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Dockerman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking. And gloriously, of course. Ho, ho, ho! I wanna wish you a Merry Christmas. I wanna wish you a Merry Christmas. I wanna wish you a Merry Christmas. I wish you a Merry of my heart.